Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. President Biden's original American Rescue Plan would have increased the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour from the current $7.25. Ultimately, that part of the proposal did not make it past budget rules. But the issue isn't going away. Progressives continue to advocate for raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks, and even some Republican senators have proposed a federal increase to $10. So should we raise the minimum wage? How would the job market be affected if we did? And is a federal minimum wage hike the ideal way to help those at the bottom of the income distribution? I'll be discussing these questions today with Jeffrey Clements. Jeff is an associate professor of economics at the University of California, San Diego, where he specializes in public finance, health economics, and labor economics. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. How has the thinking about the employment effects of the minimum wage changed over the past uh, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years? Uh, has it been the same <laughs> the whole time through? How, how, how has it changed, if at all? Sure. So that's that's a big question right out the gate. Oh, yeah. um, and of course, the answer that you'll get to that question will depend in part on, um, on who you ask. I think it's fair to say, uh, both from you know, looking at the body of research as a whole, and also from looking at surveys of the views of the economy, you know, of the economics profession, you know, inclusive of economists who aren't researchers directly studying the minimum wage, that the view of the employment effects of the minimum wage has, has softened fairly substantially over time, where 20, 25 years ago, you would find a pretty broad majority of economists, you know, responding that they would expect moderately sized minimum wage increases to have non-trivial effects on employment. And where today you have a non-trivial number of economists who think that the effects of modestly sized minimum wage increases on employment are, are null, if not slightly positive, and even being you know, more bullish on the prospects for very large increases in the minimum wage uh, having modest impacts on employment. But, but at the same time, there are also many economists who, uh, who continue to, to worry greatly about the employment effects of a minimum wage as high as say, you know, $15 in states like uh, Alabama and, and Mississippi in particular. And a sizable fraction of the research that's being done on the effects of minimum wages does in fact continue to find um, employment impacts, sometimes small, sometimes non-trivial in magnitude in ways that can, can vary uh, meaningfully with the economic circumstances in which those minimum wage increases are enacted. So, and when you talk about employment effects, employment impacts, what, kind, what are you talking about specifically? Specifically, Is it you know, people losing their jobs or what exactly? Sure, so yeah, so this is, this is actually a, a super important point and there are a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of interesting kind of layers of, of nuance that one could potentially um, work, work into this. So, so you know, one, one layer of distinction would be between employment, you know, just meaning, am I employed? Does an individual have a job? Uh, versus thinking about the number of hours that they are employed in that job. And then a second layer, um, when thinking about the effects of the minimum wage on the number of jobs, 
would be to, um, you know, to differentiate between, say, circumstances in which a minimum wage increase, you know, leads a firm to, uh, for example, hire fewer new workers than they otherwise would have um, versus taking the more drastic action of actually laying off some of the workers that they, uh, that they currently have. And that, that's a dimension that's sort of interesting to think about in, in the very specific context of some of the recent work that's been going on um, in analyses of recent minimum wage increases, which is to say that if we take, uh, for example, the, the studies that have been conducted to analyze the increases that were enacted by the city of Seattle, uh, very large minimum wage increases that went into effect in the middle of the decade, one of the interesting dimensions of the results of the authors of the Seattle minimum wage studies um, is that impacts did seem to show up primarily on the hours margin as opposed to on the number of jobs margin. And then, and then further, that there was pretty modest evidence of declines in hours uh, or loss of jobs for individuals who had been employed in their current jobs for, for a period of time, you know, who, who had built up some experience and uh, know-how on, on the job with their current employers. Uh, instead, most of the negative impacts were showing up on individuals who either had just recently started their relatively low-wage jobs or who hadn't yet had the opportunity to, you know, to find a low-wage job um, within the Seattle labor market. And I, I think that, you know, that, that type of nuance to results, I think, is popping up in a variety of contexts in which the minimum wage is being studied. So, for example, if you take a couple of, uh, of my own pieces of work, which are, you know, and this is going to be drawing off of separate uh, pieces of research. My, my first piece of research on the minimum wage actually, you know, took, took place in the context of, of the, the worst labor market, you know, that, that we had seen certainly in, in my lifetime up until the COVID pandemic, which was the global financial crisis. And, and in that setting, I found fairly substantial negative impacts of the minimum wage increases that were enacted well, how big were those increases back then? So we're talking what, 2007, 2009? Yeah, 2007 to 2009. So, so we're talking. We were talking about in total a 40 percent, a roughly 40 percent increase in the federal minimum wage from five dollars and fifteen cents to seven twenty-five. And where my my research was was taking advantage of the fact that that was differentially binding across states, right? So some states already had minimum wage rates that were above the federal minimum, and hence were less bound by those increases. And so I was comparing what was going on in the labor markets of those states with the labor markets of states where the full $2.10 increase was being felt. And in that, in that analysis, I, I found pretty substantial evidence of declines in employment among low-wage um, low individuals, sufficiently large employment impacts that, you know, that in fact the kind of net earnings of the target group appeared to modestly uh, decline. That's that's rarely the case. So, you know, the vast majority of minimum wage studies, even when you do find employment effects, the estimates will be such that the kind of, you know, overall earnings of the most targeted groups of individuals are sort of modestly, uh, modestly increased. Um, but so that that great recession experience contrasts with what uh, your colleague Michael Strain and I have found in analyzing the last decade's worth of minimum wage increases. Um, where you know where we tend to see much more um, much more modest impacts with those minimum wage increases taking place um, in in the context of you know what until the until the COVID pandemic was you know was a very long running um, economic expansion and then even you know even further as you kind of 
you know, slice the data a bit, a bit more, it seems that, that we're seeing kind of moderate, you know, it's always hard to put adjectives on these things, but I would say kind of moderately sized negative effects on employment among low skilled groups in the states that kind of moved early to enact relatively large minimum wage changes. And, you know, effects that look more or less like null effects for some of the later movement in minimum wages, which is which is interesting in that those the later movements in the period that we're analyzing are when we were, you know, in a very hot labor market with with quite robust wage growth and where the unemployment rate had had declined for the population as a whole, you know, into the neighborhood of four of four percent. So the economic context certainly certainly matters a great deal just in terms of thinking about how much stress a given minimum wage increase will will put onto uh, the employers of low wage workers. All right. So you have to so you sort of have to consider, I guess, you know, what, what that labor market is, is like at the moment, you have to consider sort of the, the size of the minimum wage increase. You have to sort of consider what kind of like the prevailing wages in the area are, are like, if you're in kind of low wage area versus a higher wage area, uh, like I said, the, sort of the, the magnitude of the increase, what period of time the increase uh, is supposed to take, you know, is it all going to happen right away in a year? Or are they going to phase it, phase in that increase uh, in five years? So there's a lot. So, there's a lot of things that to, to, to consider when trying to evaluate a particularly a particular policy proposal. Then, yeah, that, that's a, that's absolutely right. Um, and and you know, and in some ways, when we when we talk about this as you know, as economists or as as econometricians, um, it starts to sound quite complicated. But if you but if you just think about it from the perspective of a business owner, I think I think it actually it actually gets pretty simple. You know, the business owners are asking the question of what are going to be the, you know, the total costs associated with hiring a particular worker. You know, that's a, that's a dynamic question. It, it involves kind of the, the expected duration of that employment relationship. And they'll be wondering if bringing that worker on will, you know, will generate more revenue than it does, um, than it does cost. And so, you know, the, the effects of say, uh, a $1 or $2 minimum wage increase in a robust economy, you know, you might think, nah, if I hire this, this worker, you know, within a few months when they're, when they're fully up to speed in terms of their know-how um, on the job, you know, you know, I might've wanted to start them at a slightly lower wage, but they'll, they'll eventually, you know, be, be bringing in more revenue than, than what they cost. Um, whereas if we're talking about increasing the minimum wage, you know, over a short period of time by three, four or $5, you know, that's, that's going to be binding on, how how much I would otherwise have paid that worker for an extended period of time. Um, I, and I want to drill down on that for a second, but take one quick step back. When you're talking about some of the employment effects in Seattle, so the kinds of people who are being hurt, uh, I, I guess with people who are not in the market or just got in the job market, which to me sounds like, you know, young people, I don't know, you know, teenagers, like, so the, the kind of person who gets hurt is what exactly? Is who exactly? Yeah, so this is so I'm, I'm I'm glad you brought this up. So this is um, I don't know that this, uh, at least from from what I remember of the Seattle study, I don't know that I'll be able to use that study in particular to anal, you know to assess this in great detail. Mm -hmm. But it, but yeah, it's certainly very important to think about you know what the makeup of the minimum wage population is, and it can be a little bit confusing because when we study the minimum wage, you know we're often using course data to try to take a stab at what groups would likely be impacted. And so many of the studies focus on groups like teenagers or relatively young high school um, dropouts. 
And so when we find evidence of negative employment effects, those would tend to be the groups that they would uh, load onto. But the studies are incomplete in some sense in, the, in that they're not typically able to capture you know, every last um, minimum, minimum wage worker. Um, but, but in terms of thinking about the minimum wage workforce, you know, so it is, um, it's, it's diverse in a variety of ways, but relative to the workforce as a whole, you know, it's disproportionately consisting of, um, you know, of teenagers, of individuals with relatively uh, low levels of education and individuals with low levels of, um, you know, of job market experience. So one thing I hear as well, if we had a, a much higher minimum wage, then these employers might attract higher skilled people. Is, is that a possible positive employment effect that would help these companies? So I wouldn't, I don't know that I would use the, the phrasing of a positive employment effect that would help the companies, but it, but it would certainly be the case that when the, you know, when the minimum wage rises, one of the things that you might expect, um, you know, someone working in human resources uh, to, to do would be to, to begin looking for workers who are a bit higher skilled uh, than the workers that they were looking for uh, before. And in, 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 one of, in one of my papers on some of the minimum wage increases from the last decade, we find some evidence that's kind of consistent, that's consistent with, you know, with precisely that sort of mechanism, name, namely that in an analysis of job vacancy postings, we find that minimum wage increases that were enacted in you know, 2014 and 2015 in particular were associated with declines in the fraction of job ads in the food service and retail sectors you know, that, were, um, that, that, that didn't have a high school diploma requirement. Um, and then that's interesting to think about in terms of the impacts of the minimum wage. So, you know, there are going to be costs then for the workers whose job prospects are, are cut off by that requirement, but there might also be some, some benefits to the slightly higher skilled workers who, uh, who are now finding it more easy to find a job. How does the minimum wage potentially at, uh, interact with automation? Um, I've certainly read a lot about the, how the U.S. has a productivity problem, if we raise the minimum wage a lot, wouldn't there be more automation, which I guess might be bad for some workers, but also would make the U.S. economy more productive, right? So when I think about automation, you know, I, I, um, I, you know, I, ce I celebrate the advance of, of technology and the improvements in living standards that sure. it enables, but, I, but I, don't, I don't think of policy shifts like a minimum wage increase to the, you know, to the extent that those policy changes, you know, induce sort of faster or slower automation, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't think of that as being a direct goal of those, um, of those policies. I would think of that as being, you know, one of the margins along which firms might respond um, in order to, you know, curb the extent to which um, they experience net cost increase as a result of the minimum wage increase. And one of the costs of that acceleration of the adoption of automation, you know, would be a reduction in the employment prospects for, for some of the lower skilled workers who, who might otherwise have, have had those types of jobs. And, in, you know, and in the minimum wage world, um, this would be kind of, you know, the classic example of this would be a fast food, um, you know, a fast food joint kind of shifting from um, you know, person operated um, cash registers towards, you know, the automated kiosks or something of uh, or something of that nature. 
one thing I hear when people who want to you know, sharply raise the minimum wage, one thing they say is, well, the minimum wage had been rising with productivity growth since the 60s. It'd be like over $24 an hour today. Is that a helpful or useful sort of comparison? So I'm not an expert on the long run wage statistics, but I'm, I'm cautious about the way that those data are, are sometimes used because what one, you know, what one really wants to know when thinking about sort of, you know, when, think, when asking the question, what levels of minimum wage, you know, might be more or less binding today relative to in some, some past time period, what I, would, what I would really want to know would be how fast has uh, productivity, you know, been rising for the types of jobs that are entry-level jobs within the labor market. And that, and that can be a very different, um, you know, a very different object than, than something like the mean or the median wage across the, um, across the economy as a whole. Well, I'm going to ask you another one of these long-term questions you don't like and see how, see how that one goes. Fire away. Another thing I hear is about looking at the minimum wage. Uh, PBS recently cited a, uh, a report and they were doing something on the minimum wage. And they said, well, um, you know, the, the federal minimum wage of like three bucks in 1979 would be equivalent to 10.47 per hour when adjusted for inflation. Um, so at the very least, we should be probably, I think what they're saying is it should be at least 11, you know, almost $11, $10.5. And that we just, at the very least, we need to keep this thing rising for inflation sort of year, year after year. Um, what, what sort of your response to that? Is that, is that a, is that a, is that sort of a good, is that a smart observation when thinking about the minimum wage issue? So I, I worry, I worry about these kinds of analyses because I don't think of I don't I don't think of the minimum wage as being a policy that um, that we should be you know benchmarking to some notion of overall um, living standards, right? So the you know the minimum wage is the wage of that tends to apply to entry level jobs in the relatively low skilled corners of the labor market. And a key aspect of those jobs is that for the vast majority of people who, you know, who hold them, the minimum wage job is, is a relatively temporary job. It's, it's a first rung on a ladder that in the vast, for the vast majority of people, you know, leads to substantial wage, grain, wage gains over the course of, um, of their career. So I, I hesitate and, you know, and push, push against the um, the idea of doing these sort of benchmarking to what's been going on with inflation over the over the long run, you know, except to the extent that that type of analysis is at least you know somewhat informative for thinking about how binding a minimum wage today might be relative to a minimum wage from several um, several decades ago. Is there an advantage to increasing the minimum wage versus say expanding? wage subsidies like the earned income tax credit is there is there, what i mean does the does raising the minimum other than obviously the you know the, the government uh, you know directly pays for one the taxpayer does and not and perhaps not the other but is there a, a, a case why again increasing minimum wage is like a better policy than the eitc so this this is a hugely important um question and it's one that's easy to it's easy to forget about or to or, or to get lost in the context of some of this, you know, the sometimes kind of rancorous debates over employment effects and their and their magnitudes. So the minimum wage and the earned income tax credit are fundamentally tools that are meant to achieve redistribution. 
And the purpose of redistribution, you know, is to try to improve the well-being of individuals or, and households that are at the bottom of the income distribution. And in two key respects, it's an important thing to keep in mind regarding the minimum wage is that it's an inferior policy instrument to the earned income tax credit. And the reason for this is that both in terms of who the benefits go to and in terms of who the costs are imposed on, the minimum wage is just less well targeted than the earned income tax credit, precisely because the earned income tax credit can leverage all of the information that we have in the tax code, both to generate the dollars from the highest possible income sources and to direct those dollars at the most um, in need um, households. And so just, just to put a little bit more, more meat on that, you know, this, this gets at the point that a non-trivial fraction of minimum wage workers you know, are teenagers uh, or other secondary earners within their households as opposed to the primary breadwinner in their households. So we, you know, we should be asking ourselves, why would we use a policy that sends say 25 cents on the dollar to a middle or upper middle class teenager for every 75 cents that gets targeted towards households you know, that, are, that are sort of genuinely in the neighborhood of the poverty line, when we could use a policy like the earned income tax credit that can make use of information about whether there are secondary earners and, um, and about whether there are say children in the household in order to target every last dollar at the most in need households. And then similarly, when people talk about who pays the cost of the minimum wage, you know, often they make the mistake of saying, oh, well, well, the minimum wage is putting the cost of these higher wages on, on business. But that's of course, that's of course not, not entirely correct. It's targeting those costs at a subset of businesses, namely the subset of businesses that happen to be in the business of say, the leisure and hospitality sector. So restaurants, hotels, and the like. And sort of there, you know, just, just to sort of put this in, a, in, an, in perhaps a super, you know, kind of folksy, you know, folksy way, we should be asking ourselves, you know, if we're designing a policy, trying to generate dollars for redistribution, why would we target the costs of that policy at people like the owners of local restaurant groups, you know, as opposed to targeting the costs of that policy, you know, at people who are the highest income Americans, who tend to be, you know, in completely different sectors. We're talking about the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Jeff Bezoses um, of the world. Um, so, so both in terms of who the dollars are, are being kind of taken from and in terms of how well the dollars are being targeted, the earned income tax credit is just a superior policy instrument, again, precisely because it, it gets channeled through the tax code and can harness all of the information that we have in the tax code. I think a common counter to what you just said is that what you're saying is the, the, the government, whether it's, whether it's a, uh, a company paying um, minimum wage or just that they're paying a, a, a low wage judged by someone that maybe it's over the minimum wage, uh, that, you're, that you're using government to subsidize a certain business model where part of that business model is that you don't pay your employees particularly well and why should, why should the government subsidize that model? Um, either make those companies pay more, or maybe they have to pay, they should be paying the CEOs less, or maybe that kind of business just shouldn't exist. Well, the, I mean, the upshot of that when taken, you know, when taken to the extreme, um, you know, is basically saying 
that um, that some non-trivial you know fraction of um, of restaurants and other leisure and hospitality services businesses um, sim simply shouldn't exist, which which is not a view that I hold. You know, this it's sort of saying the same thing about mom and pop shops, you know, relative to uh, large chains. Again, that would just be a view a view that I don't hold. But but more generally, I would kind of I would encourage a kind of redirection of the conversation to shift away from, you know, focusing on sort of redistributing towards jobs and, and instead to focus on redistributing uh, toward, towards people. And that's exactly what our tax financed redistributive instruments um, can, can accomplish. When we use the tax code for redistribution, we can, you know, we can target those resources to the maximum extent possible towards households, you know, that because they have only say one earner as opposed to two, or because they have uh, children or other dependents, um, you know, that are in fact in, in highest need. We can target the dollars to precisely those people. Uh, finally, if we want to raise people's living standards, raise their wages, you know, we need they need to become more productive over the long term. How much? How confident uh, are you on job training programs and whether they're effective? Because the easy answer is to say, well, we need to, you know, improve the training of workers. But then, but then you'll hear, well, none of those none of those programs really have a great record. Are there are there ways to train workers to to make them more, uh, sort of more valuable and, and thus raise their wages and living standards that way? So the the research literature on job training programs is not it's not a literature with which I'm intimately familiar. But my my basic understanding of it is that the you know is that the record is mixed at best. Um, you know, whereas. We know from essentially every, seemingly every study that's conducted on the effects of either education or of on-the-job experience on wages, we know that those effects are, are positive. So if we want people to be propelled you know, to higher productivity levels from which they can command higher wages, you know, we know that education works and we know that getting people into entry-level jobs so that they can accumulate experience and propel their own careers forward, we know that that, um, that, that also works. I'm sure that there are you know, some, some high, at least some highly effective uh, job, job training programs, but I would guess that the mixed uh, results that we see in the research you know, suggest that those programs are at best kind of difficult, you know, difficult to scale up um, and so I, I would, you know, recommend at least on a, you know, on a policy basis that we focus on, on, on the tried and true of uh, education and on the job experience. My guest today has been Jeffrey Clemens. Jeff, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.